Hello. Hello. Our services last Sunday were pre-recorded, and so we are sorry that there was no mention of the awful event which happened in Minneapolis that week. Uh, we posted things on social media last weekend, but we regretted that we were not able to comment in the services themselves on the Sunday. I'm talking about the brutal killing of George Floyd. Uh, you may have seen news coverage this week of riots happening in America and of demonstrations happening around our nation and elsewhere. And I imagine that most of you will be fully aware of what happened. Not all of you will, but though it makes unpalatable hearing, I feel it's important that I tell you, that I name it. I've seen the video footage and it really is very distressing. Police held down the already handcuffed black man, George Floyd, with one of them kneeling on his neck. 16 times, George gasped, I can't breathe. The police officer ignored his desperate cries and he died. This is not a standalone situation. Numerous black people have been killed by police, but this occasion has brought deeply held frustrations and an awareness of the evil reality of racism to a head. And we need to pay attention. We are grieving today with our black brothers and sisters. And we want you to know that we see you, we hear you, and we care. Paul's letter to the Corinthian church talks about the church being a body, and when one part of the body is hurting, the whole body hurts. There will be many in the church who are, for various reasons, hurting today, and we care about you too. There will be others who perhaps are Asian or minority ethnic, and you have experienced racism. But today we're focusing on particularly the members of the church in the black community, black members of our body, because many of them are hurting pretty badly today. And parents, you know, when one of your children gets stung by a bee, it's not that you love them any more than the others, but in that moment, that is where your care, that's where your attention is focused. We have a lot to learn. Racism is evil. It has no place in society, and it certainly should have no place in the church. But whether intended or not, our insensitivity to how we might inadvertently treat people of other ethnic backgrounds or other skin colors does cause other people pain. We all have blind spots, and many of us who are white, we don't realize how what we say or don't say, or what we do or we don't do, actually might inadvertently wound other people. We want to grow in our understanding and make steps to change. Debbie and I have talked with a number of our black members of, of the church this week, and today we are going to have a conversation with three of them. So we're now going to be joined by Dave, Caroline, and Dan. So thank you so much, uh, Caroline, Dan, Dave, for being with us and being willing to uh, have a conversation with us today. And um, we realize that this is actually um, quite a challenge for you because this is a, this is a very a time where you're carrying a great burden. And so we realize that we're 
we're asking on top of what you're carrying we're asking you to participate in this which will be a great blessing to our church mm. can we begin by just asking you to tell us a little bit about your background can we begin with dave yeah um so my um, grandparents actually um, are from Jamaica and they came over, um, I believe it was in the early 60s. And um, the, the, the whole idea of them coming over was to um, come and create a better life for, for their family, which included my mum uh, and her two younger siblings. And so after they came and established themselves for a little bit, they sent for my mum and her siblings to come. Um, and then, of course, came myself and my brother. So um, we grew up in um, the 70s, into the 80s and beyond. And um, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty much um, my background in terms of, of you know, my heritage, uh, my Jamaican heritage. Um, my parents came from Jamaica and um, as a result, um, here I am. Wow. Thank yeah. you. Dan, tell us your story. Yeah, so... Um, I'm a first-generation um, British citizen, so my parents came from Ghana a few years before I was born. Um, I was born in central London, and a lot like what Dave is saying, my parents really strived to create something better for us, for their children, than we had. So I was living in London, um, firstly in central London, then in west London, until I was about 11 but my parents really didn't like the culture that was surrounding us the the influence that it was having on us as kids and you know they really strive for more for us so we then ended up moving to Surrey when I was about 12 and I've lived there ever since before I came to uni so it's been quite a mishmash of of different cultures and different places mm -hmm. until I came to uni well, thank you thank Dan. you Caroline. I'm also first generation born here in Birmingham, good old Birmingham. My parents came from Jamaica in the 1950s and I was born 58 so that technically makes me the eldest on the screen. Um, and a bit like Dan's story, my, we were raised in, I was born and raised in, Bir in Hansworth in Birmingham which is predominantly um, in those days African-Caribbean and my parents didn't like the culture that, that was happening there and they wanted better for us, wanted, wanted us to go to university. They had great plans for us. So we moved away to what was predominantly an, a white Irish part of the city of Birmingham. So I grew up being able to talk about the four provinces in Ireland and how unfair the border was in Ireland, but knew very little of my own history because there was a sense almost of, like denying aspects of my history because mm. my parents wanted us to be better. Yeah, um, yeah. Can you tell us about your experience of being treated differently because of the colour of your skin growing up or even right now? Oh, where do you start? <laughs> where do you start? I have two particularly vivid memories of being a child um, and people being verbally abusive to me. One was on the number 11 bus in Birmingham, which is the outer circle. And in those days, buses, um, they didn't have doors that you got on and got off at the back. And there was a pole and we were standing, myself and my dad were standing on the platform. And these boys just came down and just 
held abuse at us. And I knew it was, it was us. We were the only black people on there. And they were going, how now, brown cow, and using the N-word and, and other things. And I could feel, my dad was holding my hand and he was almost squeezing it. And the other time was in primary school and being followed around the playground by some girls and being called names. So I learned to fight. I learned to be feisty. And I learned to give as good as I got. And that sadly followed me into my adulthood and being um, challenging and assertive would be often my default rather mm. than listening and being compassionate. Yeah, um, very similar. My mum was a nurse uh, and she worked hard when she came to this country, but she um, she never verbally said this to us, but from what she said, it was clear that she encountered some kind of racism because she would often say to my brother and I that you need to work twice as hard as the white man if you want to achieve or get anywhere in life. Mm -hmm. You need to, um, you know, go the extra mile if you're really going to succeed. And that was something that we heard frequently as we were growing up. For myself, it, was, it wasn't only um, working harder, but just everything you know my parents were always so particular on how I spoke what kind of haircuts I got the way I dressed um you know the way especially I associated with authority there was always that aspect of you will never give anyone any reason to um, belittle you or judge you and obviously those are amazing things to instill in a child to have that respect base and to always be smart but it also um instills this idea that you like you cannot be truly yourself you always have to live up and act to something in order to be truly accepted mm. yeah so i identify with that so i identify with that coming from birmingham i had quite acute brummy accents i went to grammar school and the first thing we had was elocution lessons my parents would not allow us to talk um, Patois, which is J Jamaican slang, effectively, in the house. We were not allowed to do that. We had to speak the Queen's English. Mm -hmm. you know, we had to study. I can remember being told, if you ever went out with a Rasta man, you will be thrown out of the house. <laughs> wow, wow. And yet in those days, you know, we're talking the mid to, to late 70s, the development of Rastafari here in Britain was the way of black youth developing their identity as to who they are you know which subsequently led to further rights in the 80s um but for me it was very different because not everyone did the same um as i was growing up white people behaved um differently to the way black people did um and um yet i was a part and i am a part of this this culture um this british culture because i grew up in it um, also, I also have a West Indian culture, which I also grew up in in this country. Mm. And so one of the things that I noticed when I was growing up is, as I said earlier, my mum was a nurse and uh, she would be on the phone speaking to her colleagues and she would speak the best Queen's English that I've perhaps ever heard. Um, and after that call, five minutes later, she'd be talking to one of her friends and she would speak Patwa like she's just stepped off the plane from Jamaica. It, it, it was phenomenal. It really was. And, and I remember that it caught my attention in such a way that she would switch and change depending on who yeah. she's with. Um, 
And so as I was growing up, as I went to school, my language was very similar in the sense of a lot of the teachers naturally and the, the, the friends at school, the white people at school that I would associate with, I spoke in a way which they would identify with. But yet when I was with my black friends um, from West Indian heritage, we would speak Patwa like we would hear our parents speak Patwa. And so there's this dichotomy almost, or this, this full double life almost that, that you grow up in, that you, you identify with one group and you also identify with another. Yeah, uh, yeah I am one person. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. I, with a lot of pressure from Absolutely. what I'm hearing, a lot of pressure to conform and fit in and suppress who you really are on one level to try and be more acceptable in a, in a predominantly uh, white culture. Absolutely. And so a very brief example, and, and I'll, I'll try and make the point very quickly, is I recall um, being in and amongst um, white friends when I was younger and hearing a comment about uh, a racial comment about another black person and someone turning around and saying, you're, you're not like those, Dave, you're, you're, you're all right, you're, you're one of us almost. Um, and, I, and I honestly remember feeling I'm not quite sure what to do with that. I'm yeah. sure what, how do I respond to that? Do I, do I stick up for, my, for, for the black person? Do I accept the comfort of being a part of a group that doesn't look like me, but yet they're saying that I am a part of them? I remember yeah. feeling, I'm, I'm, I'm really not sure what to do with that. And I also recall that my brother, um, who's a little bit older than myself, I, I think that he encountered a lot of racism, perhaps possibly even more than I did, because he's a slightly different personality than me. Um, and uh, they would say all his friends, supposed friends, would make all kinds of derogatory comments about um, his culture or his background. And he had nicknames that they would call him, which were quite unpleasant, but it just became the norm. So he grew up, um, you know, under this name. Um, it's, you know, the normal, but actually it's not normal at all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Dan, you, you were saying uh, the other day when we were talking, you were talking about your dad was a doctor and how some people wouldn't want to be in his surgery. Yeah, so, um, yeah, both my parents are healthcare professionals and I think my parents really wanted to kind of shield me from that, from what was going on. But as I got older, my dad would, often tell me stories about how um, people would refuse to, to see him, would seek to have another doctor see him um, because of the color of his skin, because of um, what they associated with, with, his, with his skin color, as opposed to the quality of his work and the, the fact that they were coming to him for a service. Um, and so that was really heartbreaking and the same happened with my mum on numerous occasions. She's a, she's a nurse as well. And I think it's really interesting what um, Caroline and Dave are saying about the racism that they experienced, because I think that there has been a lot of reform and racism isn't so explicit as it was in the 70s. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's not still, a, still, still prevalent and yeah. implicit. Um, and I think that's happened to me throughout my life. Um, mm -hmm. There have been explicit times. For instance, um, when we moved to Surrey and my parents felt like they had you know, finally taken us away from, from a lot of that racism and from that kind of culture of discrimination, we had a neighbor next to us who would refuse to talk to us outrightly. Um, 
would, we would say hello every morning as we were getting in the car for work and she was walking her dog. And every, every single day she would, she would um, completely ignore us. And it got to the point where she was talking to a friend and I knew that she wouldn't talk to me, but I thought maybe her friend would. And I said good morning to her friend and her friend said good morning. And as I walked past, I heard that neighbor audibly saying, you know, don't talk to him. We don't, we don't talk to them. And that's, that's kind of that explicit racism still prevalent, but throughout my life, I've experienced so much kind of implicit subconscious racism. Mm -hmm. I, I joined teams, sports teams when I was younger that were predominantly white. So I swam for 10 years before I came to uni. And then when I came to university, I rode um, for two years. And those are two sports where you don't really see people of ethnic minority. And it was so clear that they, that those guys didn't really experience that. And of course there were some amazing people that I cherish and are my best friends, but there were also people who, were so confused that someone like me was was in that um was in that sphere and kind of like what dave was saying you know they'd be like oh like you're actually okay as if you know other other people of skin color aren't and um like dave there was this real pressure of do i speak out against that and remind them that that's not okay to say mm-hmm. or as a young young man seeking comfort and seeking acceptance do you take comfort in the fact that at least you're accepted and that is such a struggle to both fight for your own insecurities but also know that what is being said isn't right and and is underlyingly racist if not overt yeah thank you all for sharing that and it's it's obviously painful to hear as people representing white culture that this is how uh, it has been a struggle for you and your parents and families and um, can we move on i just want to ask you how were you affected when you when you heard the news and and subsequently with george floyd's death i think i'll start um I think I, i've been surprised as to how it has impacted me because George is just one of many black men and women who have been murdered in the United States since the 1990s. And there was something about watching that clip and watching what I can only describe as the arrogance. And within that arrogance, there was this clearly a view that it was all right for me to do this. That something snapped and I can only describe it as it being a collective snap within the, the, the self-consciousness of, of all black people across everywhere. That it, you know, a line was drawn, enough is enough. It was so painful to see. And for me, it was painful to hear my dad, who is 90, just turned 90. He would normally tow the middle of the road, keep your head down, don't do anything to upset people and be respectful of authorities. He was been so angry about what he has seen on television and, and the rhetoric he's heard um, coming from politicians and not seeing black people as being, having a right to be, having a right to exist, ha- having a right to be valued as a member of that country. Mm. It's 
the same here in, in different ways. We've had Windrush recently and, and all the things about, you know, people who are first generation, second generation who've been here and then returned because they didn't have the right documents, whatever they may have been. And the, the endless killings, black on black killings, you know, first we had the shootings and that's become um, stabbings. And yet we don't say anything. There is a silence, there is a, a collective silence because it's just black boys killing themselves. Mm -hmm. Instead of us saying, this is wrong. Mm -hmm. And it just feels like a stirring of almost like a righteous anger that we've got to do something, we've got to change it. Yeah. 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 And, and others of you, how, how did you feel this affected you, this particular um, killing? and you know the reaction of everybody when actually this isn't this is by no means the fact this has like been a hundreds of years of this and in our country um, and yet something about george um has gripped nations yeah i um um i remember watching it um last week or whenever it was and um I was in in my room by myself as I was watching the the entire video, and um, I was sad. I was heartbroken, and and I didn't know that I was sad and heartbroken at the time because after that, um, it was dinner time, and we came and sat around the the table, and we had dinner as normal, and uh, my daughter Eden turned to me and said, "Smile, Dad," and it was at that moment that I realised that I was still locked in the grief and the sadness of what I'd just watched, um, you know, prior to coming down to dinner. Wow, I think I've I've been um, processing this feeling um, of what I've been feeling and, and what a lot of black people are feeling and a lot of people are feeling um, at this time and and I and I think I think it's deep rooted trauma. Yeah, I think it's I think it's generational um, trauma. I think that the same pain that I'm experiencing and that other people are experiencing is the same pain that my mum spoke about when she said, you need to work twice as hard as the white man. Yeah. You need to, don't let anyone take advantage of you, David. You, you make sure you fight back. You don't let anyone ride roughshod over you, she would say. You make sure that you stand up for yourself. That's the same pain. And that same pain, I'm sure that, you know, my grandparents felt when they first came to this country. And I was reflecting the other day that um, my, my grandparents' parents were slaves. And so again, that pain has gone down from generation to generation to generation. And so when I watch that, I think there is a deep rooted trauma that it brought to me and that it's bringing, or, or that it's brought to so many of us, black people in particular, that are like, that hurts. Yeah. It hurts. Yeah. And, and yeah. that was my experience of, of, of watching that, 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 that terrible ordeal. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah this this video hit me in a way that kind of brought that all back and um you know kind of made you throw your hands up in the air and say what else what else do you need to see that this is going on yeah, yeah. um and my friends will always ask you know have been asking me and been really supportive in asking what what i feel and i think the best way i can describe it is underlying frustration with tentative hope this frustration that it's taken this long and taking a video seeing a man murdered on your screen 
to to really wake people up and um, make people see that this isn't this isn't something to put on the back burner. This isn't something to try and reason away because you think the media always um, inflates the story, but this is something to really delve into and reflect on. Mm. Yeah. But also a tentative hope because people are reflecting. People are um, seeking like to know what it's like, to seeking to know what it feels like, seeking to understand there's been so much in the media about trying to be an ally trying to just pause and and listen and so even though there is that feeling of you know um this has all happened before why is this any different you know through through the grace of of god i'm still hopeful that this is going to be a a step in the right direction thank you the we've all talked about really the voice of the black community not really being heard and uh, I'm delighted that today your voices are being heard and there are many thousands of white people listening right now. Um, we want to be changed by the experience. Can I move us on and focus more to the church here and what we can learn? Um, Caroline, you've been with us, did you say 16 years? 16 years, call it 17 years, yeah. Turned up what was even more than it is today, mm. a predominantly white church. Tell us about that experience. Yes, um, and to put it in the context that I have mainly only ever attended predominantly white churches and I can remember being criticised by a friend who was a a leader of a black majority church as to why I was doing that. But I can remember coming into Trent and it was when you'd not long moved into the warehouse so I was overwhelmed by the, the vastness of it and surprised that there was very few black people but slowly started to see an increase. I think when it became quite vivid that there were few black leaders was when I attended my very first um, leaders conference which would have been about 10 or so, 10, 11 years ago and I could probably have counted on one hand the number of other black leaders that were in there and I found that quite stark mm-hmm. um, to the point that me being me, um, I, I made a comment on it on the feedback form that that had surprised me. Now, over the years, that has increased, but you know, I suppose it's just one of those things, isn't it? It's how do you raise up leaders without it becoming an equal opportunities opportunity, and so people can see that that leader is there because they have the right calibre and they have a message to, to say and they're not just there because we're trying to make it look good. Does that make sense? Yeah, Absolutely. yeah completely Absolutely. understand that, yes. You know, just before uh, we go to personally Dave and Dan to, to see your sense about this, I was walking on Sunday morning, and oh no, it was probably Monday morning, when really, really we had realised this, this huge thing is happening. Uh, we hadn't commented on Sunday, as John said, because our services are pre-recorded, but I, I felt um, um, on my conversation with the Lord was, why, why haven't I felt this as strongly as I'm feeling it now? Why is it now? And obviously we're all in lockdown, there's heightened emotions, but I really believe that the Lord is, he knows exactly why this has come to our awareness at this time. And that in this season, many of us are, are examining our hearts over a number of things because we've, we, we're kind of, we're, we're in a confined situation. We, we're in a situation where we don't, there's so much uncertainty. Mm. And, um, and I just felt, Lord, this is, this is something you have drawn to our attention in this time. 
And uh, whilst in one sense, I think this is overwhelming, I don't know how to, uh, how we're going to move forward. Um, I think what we do feel is that the commitment to conversations where we hear more. So if this is what this has done during this time is we are hearing, we are paying attention to this. Mm. The more we talk um, honestly, openly, um, and this is where I want to hear your experience, Dave, as you came into the church, because you are now on the staff with us, but that can't be easy for you because you're the only pretty much in terms of pastoral leadership, mm. um, the only one on the staff who is black. But tell me about your journey coming into Trent and uh, how that, how you experienced that. Yeah. Um, and so coming into Trent has been an interesting um, journey for me um, in that um, I, I try and live my life um, the best I can to follow what I feel the Holy Spirit is asking me to do. Um, and, and, and I believe that in living that way, that the Holy Spirit will often take you to places that you don't necessarily really want to go. Mm -hmm. And please hear me right. I'm not saying that I didn't want to come to Trent. I'm just saying that um, it, I feel it's through the leading of the Holy Spirit that I am where I am. Yeah. Um, but as you quite rightly pointed out, Debbie, um, why? Why am I here? What, what is the purpose? What, what, why, why, is, why is such a time as this would God have me to be here? Mm. And that I'm trying to listen and be obedient to that. And so uh, over the past year and a half or so, um, in fact, it was my father-in-law. He gave me a book called "We Need to Talk About Race." Yeah. Um, ben Lindsay. It's a fantastic book. Ah, yeah. uh, yes, yeah. that one. That's the one. And um, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, I, I was on this journey of, "Who am I? Mm. Who Who am I? I? I'm Dave, of course I am, um, but I'm I'm in and amongst people that don't look like me." Yeah. Um, you know, there, there aren't many black people. There are more now than there have been pre has been previously, but there aren't many black people. There aren't many people that look like me. Um, and I recall in, in, in this period, have, have it in my reflections with the Holy Spirit, thinking, you know, I'm, I wonder if there are people, black people, that would look at me and hear how I articulate myself. And a lot of this is through my culture and my upbringing, as I described earlier, through hearing my mum, that I'm able to articulate myself this way um, because it's what I grew up in. Mm. What Dan was saying earlier, but I wonder if there are black people and just speaking honestly and openly, that would look at me and think, ah, oh, he's not one of us. Yeah. Mm. When I was growing up, another thing that we used to hear um, from the black community is that if someone um, articulated themselves reason reasonably well, um, and looked a particular way, then they would be described as a coconut. Yeah. Is black on the outside and white on the inside. Yeah. Wow. Within within the black, not not all, but within a black community, if you like, um, certain people may look and think. And I, I've been guilty of doing it when I was younger. I certainly looked at a white, a black person who was well spoken and dressed reasonably well, and I would think coconut, one hundred percent. Coke. Uh, and that was because they didn't sound like me or the people that I was associating with. And so it was something that I was kind of um, grappling with a little bit, in, especially in the early days of when I first started at Trent. Mm. Am I perceived that way? 
And then the other side of that is, is that within the, the white community and friendships, and I have some fantastic relationships um, and, and friends um, within Trent uh, itself. Wonderful, love these guys dearly. Um, and I, I, would con I am convinced that they would look at me and say, well, Dave is one of us. Mm. He's one mm. of us. And I, would, and I would say I'm one of you too. And I, and I think that I am one of you all in the family of God. I think that I am. I belong in the family of God just as much as you, John and Debbie, do in the yeah. family of God as well. And I think that that looks at it at a slightly different perspective. And I, and I also think, and part of my journey, and I'm not sure if this is answering the question properly, Debbie, so forgive me if I've gone up on a slight tangent. But no problem. I, I think that part of it is um, what, what, what I've kind of come to is I am a black man, of course I am, but I am Dave. Mm. I'm Dave Ellis and Dave Ellis has grown up in a West Indian culture and my culture is what perhaps is different to yours, mm. but I am Dave Ellis. I am. Mm. I am and when my friendships see Dave Ellis and the whole of my culture that I bring with me that, that I like West Indian food I like fried fish mm -hmm. I like fried dumpling I like to have a rum and coke uh, I, this is all part of the culture that I've that I've grown up with that has made me who I am and when yeah. you like Dave Ellis you like all the culture that you that I bring with me that makes me who I am Perhaps if you don't know who Dave Ellis is on a first glance, you may make an assumption of what Dave Ellis or who Dave Ellis is. Mm. No, and you and you and you, you you go with what perhaps you've seen or you've heard, mm. or comments that you may have grown up with that people may have said um, that that will form a pin, an opinion of who Dave Ellis really is. But until you know who Dave Ellis is, you really don't know. And so coming into Chen, um, I have felt embraced to be honest, yeah. um, by people that have accepted Dave Ellis, me, for who I am. Yeah. Um, but also at the same time, I make no apology for my culture. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there are people within Trent that, um, and some of you may know who I'm referring to, that when I see, I will speak Patwa to. Yeah. And um, in Jamaican diet, and sometimes even with Caroline, we'll yeah. a little Patwa every once in a while, because that, that's who we are. Yeah. Mm apology for that and I will say that in front of you John and Debbie or anyone else because you know for me to bury that and to suppress that is to suppress who I am exactly. yeah. absolutely this is yeah. part of who I have um, I, I'm discovering or I've discovered or discovering who I've be, who I'm becoming but that part of my journey is being in Trent to kind of answer your question Debbie about what I think about Trent I I predominantly love the heart of Trent I think that your desire conversation is unreal um the fact that you're willing to have this conversation right now and and broadcast this not just in a in a small group or a midweek thing but during the sunday service um i think is a testament to how much you are willing to be the change that you want to see and you know caroline makes a great point that you know the the there's not a whole kind of Kind of slew of, of minority ethnics on leadership team but i also know that that is your heart to to change that and i as 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 a black man don't want it to just be a case of oh all these people are there to fill a quota um i want it to be a situation with people like dave where i'm like i can respect and come under the authority of these people because i know that they 
should be there and are called to be there. Um, and I think my, my only other comment is just Trent and the Vineyard movement have such a massive voice, have such a, like a booming voice in, in this echo chamber. And the fact that you're willing to shout and, and be a part of this change is amazing. But let it not be, you know, a blip. Let it not be, you know, a fleeting moment of guilt and action yeah. to then kind of be lulled back into what was the norm. Let, it, let, let that voice continue to shout out. And I, I, I have every trust, every, every trust that that is your heart. And that's why I am here and continue to be here and on this call. And, and thank you for saying that, Dan, because, you know, as our leadership, uh, our senior leadership team, our pastors, you know, we, we've been massively affected. And, and, and for me, both John and I, we're both sort of like, goodness me, this is the Lord. This is the Lord speaking. We really must pay attention. And so, you know, this, isn't, this can't just be one conversation, as you say, a blip. This has to be a series of ongoing conversations. And you know that the Lord sees us all as his children. And we are, you know, we have equal, incredible, amazing value. And we reflect uh, the image of God in our unique ways. And we were made to be different and unique. And it's a celebration. But from, from being people who love Jesus, what would you want to say to us or to the thousands watching, whoever they are? For myself, the thing that I've been reflecting on the most is what Jesus said when um, the Pharisees asked him what is the greatest commandment and first he said you know love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your body but ne next he said after this love your neighbor as yourself you know and I think that brings a whole host of things because I and I'm sure everyone can resonate with the fact that there are times when we haven't loved ourselves and as a result haven't been able to love others in the way that we should and I think that you know it's not excusing anything but a lot of prejudice and a lot of violence and pain comes from a pain in ourselves and so I think I would implore whether that's because you have pain in yourself or because of whatever just to really love one another and and rest on that know that you are loved know that you are cherished and special and cared for that you are the apple of God's eye you are so precious know that deeply so that from that place you can love others and you can give that to others who are really hurting right now in the midst of all this i, I cannot add to what dan has just said other than to get people to reflect on the fact that we've all had moments when we've been a minority in in whatever situation and it's perhaps to reflect on that and to reflect on how we felt, reflect on that pain, and then think about how you wanted to have been treated. And then use that feeling as a springboard for treating others differently. Mm. And continue the conversation. Yeah. Speak to us. Thank you, Caroline. Dave. I, um, I think a lot of what happened with George Floyd and what we've seen over the years um, is deeply rooted in fear. Um, fear of the unknown, fear of what looks different or is, is strange to us. Um, and as a result of that, that causes us to act. And as I said earlier, I think that I've been deeply affected um, by that, um, of what, what's happened. And um, 
And that has come down from generation from generation, as I said earlier. But also, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to push it perhaps a little bit here, maybe. Um, but in the, over the generations, um, from a black perspective, um, we've been in, uh, affected by what we've seen because of what's happened from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. Um, and here we are. But I wonder if from um, a white perspective that it's more of a case of um, infection we've in, 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 in the sense of being infected with racism from generation to generation to generation. Mm. Because the reality is, is that we've all been exposed to it for centuries from one side or the other with racism, you know, on the black side, white side, and any other nationality or, or, or race, we've all been affected by it. And it's either as the perpetrator or the victim. Mm. And so generationally coming down, uh, I would imagine that there is an infection of racism, which has been, you know, been reducing as we've come down today, which is why we would say, many would say, I'm not racist. Mm. I'm racist you know i have black friends i have friends that are of different races and so on i'm not that but however in the same way that i didn't realize that i was dealing with the trauma from generations yeah. i wonder if that there are things in us that we need to address that we don't know are there yeah um, and so you know we need to be having honest conversations about these kind of stuff someone once said that if um, someone should hold up a mirror, we should never be afraid to look. Mm. What you've done, John and Debbie, in, the, in engendering this conversation today is holding up the mirror to take a look. And when we look at the mirror, we have to be prepared to see what is there. Yes. What we want to see. Mm. Doing so, there may be some things that are um, ugly in us that, that, that aren't, aren't, aren't pretty. Um, mm. We don't know that they exist until something like you said, Debbie, happens and then we realize, why am I feeling this way? And so it may be that, you know, um, a white family, um, their daughter comes home with, with Tyrone, the six foot three black man with an athletic build. And she says, I want to marry him. And uh, there's a, something that happens in us that's like, oh, I'm not sure about that. What is that? Mm -hmm. Or if I'm going for a walk down the, down the pathway and that there's a, a black person coming towards me and I feel something, I'm feeling, what is that? What is that? And, and we need to be, I think, having honest and real conversations about this stuff. We need to take an honest look in the mirror in order to address this stuff. And one of the wonderful things I believe that you've done, John and Debbie, in, in the vineyard is make it a safe place. It's a safe place. And with the love of God, we can be honest and we can be real and we saying, I'm fearful or I'm scared or I'm afraid. And I don't know why, but this is just how I feel. We can have a conversation about that and then we can start moving this forward. Yeah. And then for the next generation and the generation to come, then we no longer have to deal with the kind of stuff that we've been dealing with over the past couple of weeks with George Floyd. Thank you. Thank you all. I wonder whether you could lead us as we pray, as we close now. Uh, each of us just lead us in prayer. I'm reading from Colossians chapter 3, verses 11 to 14. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. 
therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Yeah, Father, thank you so much for that word. And I pray, Lord, that you would have mercy on us for the way in which we, as a nation, as a world, have treated your children. Thank you that you are so full of grace and mercy to be calling us back to you even after all of this. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to feel your love, to feel what it means to be truly beloved by you. So that as we go out into the world, as we reflect and reform, we would do it from a place of understanding how sacred life is to you and therefore treating it as such. In Jesus' name. Yeah, and Father, we again pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to know what you're doing in this current season. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to be obedient to you. Lord, often when you, you ask us to, to do things or call us out, it's often out of our comfort zone. But Father, you said you would never leave us or forsake us, and that includes now. So Father, we ask for your presence to be with us now and always as we move through this season in jesus name and lord um for myself and for others like me we ask your forgiveness that we did not share in your sufferings that we didn't see this um in the way that you have wanted us to see it in this time and so i thank you that you have exposed something and we ask lord that as you enable us to receive forgiveness we also want to receive hope that your kingdom will come and that your justice will be expressed and that we will play our part in this and stand up for righteousness and justice in these times amen 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 thank you all so much um it may be that if you're watching this that this has touched places in your life and you would really like someone to pray for you perhaps you're hurting today and we've got a team of people waiting if you were to click on that request prayer button and they would love to pray for you it may be it's unrelated to this and you are in need of physical healing or there's some other prayer need but please do click on that button today has been a step a very small step in a journey and we'll be having further conversations over time. But one thing, um, Dave, you've just been discussing and there's something going to be happening tomorrow. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so tomorrow um, is two weeks, 14 days since the death of um, George Floyd in Minneapolis. And um, he was actually pronounced dead um, at a hospital in Minneapolis at 9.25 p.m. Uh, two weeks ago. And so tomorrow, uh, we'd like to meet together at 9.25 p.m. Of course, this is a different time zone to America, but we feel that it would be quite significant to meet together at that time to pray and reflect and um, just um, give to God some of the things that we've been talking about today, this morning. And so um, the guys will be coming along very shortly to speak a little bit more about that.